Let's open the word of prayer, and then let's dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We ask, Lord, now as we go to your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us this morning. I pray for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. May you meet us here. Uh, We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. So as a quick review, we were reminded that the revelation, that's apocalypsis, is the word, the original language, and it means the unveiling. So this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So as we read through Revelation, certainly uh, a, a huge focus is, you know, things are going to happen in the future, but what we're really seeing is the character and the person of our Savior. And the better we get to know Him, the more we're going to love Him. Amen? And so we saw in chapter 1 who he, what He looks like in heaven. Amazing. Just a picture of Jesus in heaven. Quick reminder, in His glorified body, He had eyes like, he has eyes like a flame of fire, feet like brass refined in a furnace, voice, the sound of many waters. Out of His mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. We'll see that in this morning's text. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. See, Jesus is no, no longer a baby in a manger, and He is our Savior, but He's no longer on the cross. Amen? By the way, if you've got a crucifix with Jesus on the cross, you might want to lose that because He's not there anymore. Can I get an amen to that? Okay, He's a risen, a living Savior triumphed over sin and death. But He is the almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us right now. That's where Jesus is. Amen? And so we get a glimpse of Jesus in chapter 1. Chapter 2 and 3 that we're in now, remember he says in, in Revelation 1.19, the things which are, the things which were, the things which are to come. So Jesus is in heaven. And now in chapter 2 and 3, we're going to see the church age. And if you were here the last couple of weeks, we saw first the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, from the outward appearance, looked like a church we would all want to attend because they, were, they seemed to be doing everything right. They labored unto exhaustion. They would not stand for evil. They tested all teaching against the word of God. They called out false teachers as liars, and they persevered in the face of great persecution. All that's wonderful. But then Jesus says, and he does this with almost all of the seven churches as we're going through them. We'll be on the third church today. But most of them, what he does, he tells them the things they're doing right. And then he exhorts them about the the areas where they're failing. Can you imagine if we got a letter from Almighty God to Calvary Chapel, Conejo Valley, and said, okay, guys, here's what you're doing really well. By the way, you're blowing it over here. Amen? And that's kind of what these letters are. So these letters, even though written to specific churches in that day, it's still for the church today. Amen? So what was the problem with Ephesus? They seemed to be doing everything right. Well, they had left their first love, and our first love is Jesus. Amen? And you know what? We, could, we, we can love the people in the church we can, quote, love the church, which we should, but we love Jesus more than anything, amen? And when we lose sight of making him the priority and passion of our life, it's going to change everything else. And so the Ephesians, the Lord was very, he said, you've left your first love. They didn't slip up and, you know, by accident. They made the conscious choice. I just read an article this morning that was sent to me saying that there's more exodus in the Christian church in America today than any time in our nation's history. And the reason that is happening is people are so caught up in chasing after everything else. There are so many distractions, and so many of them are biblically illiterate. Amen? Years ago, I was called by the Barna Group. You guys ever heard of the Barna Group? They called me up and said, we need a Calvary Chapel pastor to answer us some questions. And the first thing they said was, what are the three things in the church today that cause you the greatest amount of concern? And the first thing I said was, we have a church filled with biblically illiterate people. And the guy goes, a Calvary Chapel guy saying it's the Bible, okay. Like, right? right? And, then, and then I said this, you know, and, and I, when I shared that, it's true because, guys, if we don't read this book, we need to know the author, amen? And you're not going to know him without, he gave you a love letter. He wrote it down. He gives you the Holy Spirit so you can understand it. And some of us, we come to church on Sunday looking for our Bible where we set it down last Sunday because we haven't picked it up since, Amen? So the exhortation is we need to spend time in God's Word. And you know what? When we spend time in His Word, we'll love Him more. The key to restoration, He told them there from where they have fallen, repent and go back to your first works. And then last week, we saw the church at Smyrna. That was the persecuted church, if you guys remember that. And I I told the message, you know, remaining faithful in the midst of the storm, in the midst of persecution and trials. 
And persecution is really not something we face as much as trials. We have some level of persecution. Whenever I read this, I think about when I would go to India, and I've been there seven times, and I would teach pastors, sometimes up to you know, 500 to 1,000 pastors, how to study and teach the Bible for a week. And when I would have lunch with these guys, virtually all of them had been beaten for their faith. And I remember them saying to me, well, Pastor, you know what it's like. You're a pastor. So you've been beaten for your faith too, right? Uh, no. I had someone stop talking to me one time. Is that the same? No, that's not the same, right? And so they go through persecution, and we saw four, th- four reasons to remain faithful last week and to be encouraged in the midst of trials. Number one, because of who we serve. We serve the Almighty God, amen? The creator of all things. Does he know the trials you're going through? What's the answer? Point number two is because Jesus knows. He knows the trial. This is last week. Because he knows the trials we're going through, he's a faithful God. He sees it all. He knows it's coming, and he will either calm you through it or remove the the storm. Amen? Sometimes he lets it go, but he calms you through it. Because it's, uh, number three, because it's temporary. This is last week. Whatever trial you're going through is temporary. And I remember, look, I I get ministered to more than maybe you do because I spent hours, and you know, again, I hate to always mention it, but my son Mark going to heaven you know what? Early on, I'm like, well, that's not temporary. It's for the rest of my life. Well, the rest of my life is temporary compared to heaven. Amen? When we get to heaven, this is going to be a, it's a vapor. It's just like that, and it's over. And then finally, because it's worth it. Whatever trial you're going through, no suffering is wasted. God will use it for his glory if you will let him. Amen? So he exhorted and encouraged. He didn't say anything bad to the persecuted church. He just encouraged them. Now, grab your outline this week. Tell the message, overcoming compromise. We're going to be looking at the church that struggled with compromise. Do churches today compromise a little bit? Yeah. Seeing a little bit of that, right? So I've told it, overcoming compromise, how to live a holy and set-apart life in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. Number one, by making God's Word our standard. The Word of God is the foundation of truth. Amen? It's not my truth and your truth, it's the truth. And you don't have your own truth. We don't have our own special truth. Two plus two is four for everybody, even if you think it's nine. Amen? Well, my truth is it's nine. Well, your truth is wrong. It's a lie. It's not truth. Amen? So we need to stand by the Word of God. The Word of God is the standard by which we live. Number two, by holding fast to Jesus, by being in intimate fellowship with Him. He's not, again, just the Savior on the cross and praise God for the cross of Calvary. Without it, we'd all be doomed. But you know what? It's beyond Savior. He must be Lord. He doesn't just give us the get out of hell free card and we go live our life. He's, he's called us to have an intimate fellowship and a relationship with Him. I know the Lord better than I know my wife of 38 years. And you know what? We need to know Him better. Amen? Number three, by refusing to allow compromise and false teaching into the church. Now that, first and foremost, does come to the pastors, right? But there's a reason why we hand out Bibles when you come in. Because we want to make sure you make sure I'm not making this stuff up. Amen. You need to hold me accountable. But we want to look and we need to recognize false teaching. How do we recognize false teaching? By knowing the truth of God's word. Amen. When you know the truth, you will not stand for the counterfeit. Number four, by repenting when you when we have blown it. How many of you guys have blown it this week? Okay. All right. If, you, if your hands aren't up, you're lying and you're prideful. But other than that. Okay. <laughs> But the reality is that as believers, we're not sinless, but we should sin less, amen? But as believers, when we sin, when we, when we make the ungodly choice, when we choose to, to sin, when we choose to allow our pride or our flesh to get in the way, a believer feels conviction. If there's no conviction for your sin, there's been no conversion, amen? If you, if you go out and live a sinful life and you're not convicted, you don't have the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will give you the head slap in Jesus' name, Amen? He will bring conviction. Why? Because those who the Lord loves, He disciplines to bring us back into right fellowship with Him. And then finally, by recognizing that the blessings of obedience are far better than the temporary pleasures of compromise. Can anybody say amen to that? Because the enemy will lie to you. Oh, yeah, just do this, man. you got to sow your wild oats. you got to get this out of your system. It doesn't get out of your system until you get Jesus in your system. Amen. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know what? The lie, the enemy wants to kill you. He hates you. He lies to you. He wants you to be attracted to the things that will destroy you. And Jesus came that you might have life and life more abundant. And as you hear me say all the time, the word of God is not a fence to keep you out of Disneyland. It's a guardrail to keep you from driving off a cliff. He's not keeping you from fun. He's keeping you from harm. Amen? So let's pick up there in Revelation chapter 2. 
If you're new here, I always tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'll tell you, and at the end, I'll tell you what I told you. Amen. It's called driving the point home. Amen. So that's always a, it's an uh, applicational outline. Let's begin there looking at, again, we're going to see the compromising church, beginning there in verse 12. It says, and, the, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos, right. So again, we've talked about this each week, the angel, the word there is messenger. Some believe it's an angel over the church that, that watches over it. And most believe, and I believe this, that he's speaking to the pastors of these local churches. So he's, calling, he's exhorting them. So imagine if you're the pastor in Pergamos, and John gets this from the Lord, and then it's delivered to you in his handwriting. The apostle John, who walked with the Lord, is on the island of Patmos, where he's being you know, detained because of his faith. And you get this letter, and it's from the Lord, and he's writing this letter to them. So he's speaking up to the messenger, the pastor, I believe, of the local church. And the apostle John, again, writes it again, having been banished. So... It's passed on to him, and so let me tell you a little bit about Pergamos. I always have to give you the background of each city. So it was a capital city of uh, a region of more, for more than 300 years. It was a city that had a big university and was really into uh, learning and really into medicine, okay? Keep that in mind. It's going to come into play in a little bit. And it was a noted center, again, for culture and education, and it had one of the greatest libraries in the whole world, over 200,000 books. Now, it might not sound like a lot until you remember that in those days, every book had to be handwritten. Nobody's photocopying books. Amen? So if there's a book, someone handwrote it. You want to copy the Bible? Here, you can borrow this for about six months, sit down and write your own copy and give it back to me, right? And so it was a place where there was a lot of learning, and it was wealthy, but they had to work for their wealth. Not, not a port city like Ephesus and Smyrna. It wasn't on the trade route, but it was also a sense. So they were hard hardworking, hard educated, cultured people. One other thing, they were wicked. Sounds about right, doesn't it? Well-educated and wicked. Now look, you can be well-educated and godly, but we live in a time right now, if you're well-educated in most schools, you're going to be taught a bunch of nonsense. Amen. I'm not saying, look, if you, need, if you want to be a mechanical engineer, go to college and do that. But you're going to run into a philosophy teacher and a bunch of other people that don't know Jesus are going to try to indoctrinate you in a lie. Amen? And so when you go to university, that's why you need to know the truth of God's word. So in Pergamos, this is how they were. And they had a center for, they were a center for pagan worship. They had temples to Athena, Dionysus, uh, Demeter, and Zeus. And the temple of Zeus was high up on a hill and it was considered to be one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So Pergamos was especially known as a center for the worship of a deity known as Asphalias. And so it represented, now this particular uh, pagan deity, and it's Asclepius, I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's represented by a serpent. So they worshiped a God represented deity by a serpent. And what they would do is they would go into this big temple and lay on the floor if they needed healing, and they would let this and they would sleep there overnight, lay on the floor, and they would let all the serpents out that weren't poisonous, and they thought if a serpent crawled across them that then they would be healed. Okay? Like voodoo, amen. But here's the reality: people who are desperate to be healed will look for anything to heal them. Amen. And we know the great physician. I believe in doctors. God can use doctors, but I also believe that, the, that they're not the primary source. It's Jesus, amen? We want to come to him humbly, but, and he may use a doctor to heal you. So it was represented by a serpent, was the God of healing and knowledge. Represented by a serpent. When you think of the serpent, who do you think of in the Bible? Satan. So there was a medical school at this temple of Pergamos, and as I said, this famous Roman god of healing became a destination for sick and diseased people from all over the Roman Empire who flocked to Pergamos seeking healing and relief. And again, they would lay on the floor and hope that a snake would pass by them. And the hope of the sufferer was they laid in the darkness is that they might be touched by one of these snakes as they, as they glided across the floor. When I was in India, um, they had these you know, high, high Hindu holidays. I mentioned this before. And 
couple of things that really just struck, stuck out to me. On my first trip to India, I'd only been there a couple days, and we were driving to a new destination for me to do a pastor's conference, and I had some interpreters with me. We're driving along, and I looked to my left, and I'm not exaggerating. There was a five-story tall monkey god, and people were all wearing these red capes, and they were marching around the monkey god, and they're going around the monkey god, and I'm like, I thought, I, 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 am I awake? I was like, am I awake? Is this really happening? Am I seeing what I'm seeing? I must be asleep. Did I eat too many donuts last night? What's up? And I watched this, and I thought, this looks like something out of the Ten Commandments, right? I got out of the car, and he's like, you can't go over there. I said, says who? So I went over there, and I'm like, what are you guys doing? I, I, I need, brought my interpreter. What are you doing? Oh, this is our, our act of worship. I said, to who? They said, to this God. They told me the name of the God. I said, if I knock that God over, it's going to break. Amen? I'm trying to witness to people, but it's so tragic that people are looking for something to bring meaning to their life, for something to bring healing to them, and the answer is Jesus, and the enemy will put up anything else that will distract us from the truth. Later in that same trip, I, was, uh, I went by this temple with the guy, the biggest Hindu temple in the world. And I said, well, let's go over there. And there was a guy on his knees, and I didn't have anybody spoke his language, and he was crying, tears running down his face, and he had a bunch of red ash on his face to this, this elephant statue. And he was crying out. And it may be funny, but it's actually tragic, isn't it? And, I, and, and my interpreter said, yeah, I don't, he's speaking a different language. I don't know. What, and I just wanted to tell him, guys, there's an answer. It's not, it's not, a, eight, it's not a five-story tall monkey, and it's not a, 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 you know, a cement elephant. Amen? It's the true and living God. And so here's the idolatry, and this is where Pergamos lived. They were filled with idolatry. They were filled with wickedness, but they were smart, and they were educated, and they were wealthy, and so they thought they had all the answers, and they needed the answer. Now, how would you like to be the pastor of the church in that city? I'll be honest with you, it reminds me of Santa Cruz, where I came from. So today, nearly 2,000 years later, the rod of this, of this snake uh, is the logo or part of the logo for more than a dozen medical groups. You ever seen a medical, right? You got a rod and they got a snake wrapped around it. Guess where it came from? Pergamos. It came from this town where they worshiped. And they believed that that snake was a source of healing, and now medical people have snakes around a rod. Guys, from the Bible, 2,000 years ago. I meant to print one out, but we, I knew we were going to be in there so we wouldn't have a screen up like we do in the tent. But I just, it's just tragic. Now, let me just read something to you really quickly. It's out of numbers, and then we'll move forward. But I want you to see this whole serpent thing as a deal. It says in Numbers 21... Then they journeyed, uh, they, verse, verse 14 and 15, excuse me, verses 4 to 9. It says there, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. Our soul loathes for worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord, and against you pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten who looks to it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when they looked to the bronze serpent, they lived. Now when you read that, that doesn't sound like that makes a lot of sense, does it? So serpents are, so here they are murmuring against God, cursing God, blaming God, mad at God. Serpents come into the camp, start biting everybody, they're dropping dead. Now they go, that was a bad thing we did. We need to ask God for forgiveness. So they go and cry out to God, and God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent on a bronze pole and hold it up, and when they look to the serpent, they would be healed. Now, that, but the serpent represents Satan, doesn't it? And I don't understand that. Well, the answer comes in John chapter 3. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
See, that serpent on a pole was a representation of Jesus on the cross because he who knew no sin became sin for us. Amen? So they were looking to the pole, but we need to look to the cross. Amen? And so here, this is Pergamus, the snake god. The, we're, we're educated, we're cultured, we're wealthy, we're smarter than anyone else. Pergamus, along with this worship of knowledge and its heavy idolatry like Smyrna, was heavily into worship of the Caesar or the emperor. In fact, some 50 years before, Smyrna won the honor of building the first temple to Tiberius. They've been making temples to man, temples to snakes, you know, temples to all these false gods, and people are worshiping them. Because here's what Satan does. He brings a counterfeit so that people will miss out on the truth. There's counterfeits today. The Mormon church, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all these people who will use the name of our God, but they're worshiping a false God. Amen? Now, do we love them? What's the answer? We love them all. We want to see them saved. But right now, they're worshiping at an altar of a false God. And, we need to, and so that's why we need to know the truth. So Smyrna and Pergamus were similar in many ways. The wickedness, immorality, the idolatry, the worship of Caesar. Remember we talked about last week for the people in Smyrna that if they would go in and take up some incense and put it out and confess Caesar as God, then they could live like the rest of the world. They could buy and sell and trade. They could have a job. But if they wouldn't do it, Nobody would sell to them. No one would employ them. They're probably going to starve. What a temptation just to go in once a year for two minutes and make this pledge and be able to live a normal life. And God bless them that they wouldn't do it. And it meant their own children might starve. It meant they might be thrown to lions. And you know what? Here's reality. We find out what's really in our heart when our faith is put to the test to the point where we could lose our lives if we stand up for Jesus Christ. And they stood. This church is going to compromise. The believer's responses are not the same, nor were Jesus' words the same to Pergamus as they will be to, uh, as they were to Smyrna. So the city was filled with idolatry, wickedness, sexual immorality, intellectual pride, Caesar worship. Again, tough place to be a Christian. Pergamus is, is derived from two words. Pergus means a tower or elevation, and gamos means married. So they represent a time when the church history, when the church was elevated to a place of power in the world, but they soon discovered if they wanted to live the way the world did, they had to be married to the world to maintain their place of power. They knew that they had to succumb to the things of the world. Look, there's churches today that are still not open because of COVID. And you know what that is? That's succumbing to the world instead of standing for the things of God. We honor the government until it tells us to dishonor God, and then we choose to obey God rather than man every single time. And you've heard me say it, and I'll say it again. If the black plague strikes tomorrow and everybody's dropping dead, we're still having church. Come down here and drop dead with us. We'll all go to heaven together. Amen? <laughs> so then he says to this church in Pergamos, right? Very educated, very wealthy. You know, we're into culture. Uh, we're into medicine. We've got all the answers, he says to this, to this church. These things, I sa he says, who has the sharp two-edged sword. So notice in each of the seven letters, he gives an attribute of his deity that he already told us earlier in chapter one. And he gives the one that needs to be applied to that church. And so the two-edged sword is what? It's the word of God. And so what does this city need? It needs the word of God. Now, we know that's true for every city, amen? But So this description is an important reminder of the characteristics of who our God is, his person and nature, the one that this individual church had forgotten or needed to be reinforced. In Revelation 1.16 said, He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went the sharp two-edged sword. The sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth is the word of God. God. It says in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When I was asked about that Barna survey, the first thing I said was, biblically, biblical illiteracy is a problem. The second thing I said was, a lack of a desire to live a holy and set-apart life. And then thirdly, a lack of a burden to see the lost saved. 
Now, I only had a two-minute warning. I didn't get a chance to sit down and study. But those are three things is that, look, we, we need to know what the Word of God says. We need to be people that desire to live holy and set-apart lives, and we need to have a burden for the lost. Amen? People don't know Jesus. They need to be born again. And so Jesus is going to confront this church with his word, and he will use his two-edged sword to make some separation among the Christians in Pergamos. The sword he speaks of, again, is not a dagger. It's actually the word there is for a large sword that you would use in battle up to five feet long. It wasn't a little dagger. It was a sword. And he said, that's what comes out of the mouth of God. That's what the word of God does. It divides between the truth and the lie. Amen? It opens us up to the truth of who we are. As my buddy, Pastor Rob McCoy, says, this is the only book, not only do you read it, but it reads you. Amen? When you open it up, it, it hits your heart, and it speaks to you. So a sword wielded in battle that brings about great destruction. And the point here, God's word, the standard against which all of us must be judged. All doctrine, all teaching, all truth, all behavior, all of life must be measured against the word of God. Where there's no repentance and transformation, there's going to be righteous judgment. See, the word of God will either drive you to repentance and restoration with God, or it will be the source of your righteous judgment one day because you rejected him. Amen? So this is either a source of restoration through repentance, or it's a source of righteous judgment. Again, it can be a surgical tool that produces healing or a weapon of war that produces righteous judgment. In 2009, I had 61 surgeries. From a, I got a bot surgery that put me in the hospital. I was in a coma for a while. And all those surgeries, they kept cutting me open. I, I got scars all over me. I looked like I'd been in a, a fight and lost. And what happened was they kept opening me up. But you know what? That, went, that was for healing, right? But there are people that go out and get stabbed in battle, and they die. And so the Word of God, again, is for, can be a source of healing or a source of righteous judgment. It all depends on how we choose to respond to the truth of God's Word. It can bring healing if received. It will bring righteous judgment if rejected. So number one there of overcoming compromise, how do we do that? How do we live a life set apart in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation? Number one, by making God's Word our standard, the standard for truth for life, and for holiness. Point number two, by holding fast to Jesus. Look at verse 13. I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Okay. Like the other churches, Jesus knew their works, their labor, their actions. But notice that the Lord not only knows their works, but the circumstances under which they did them. I know where you live. I know the city you're in. I know where you dwell. I know the stuff you have to struggle with. I know you're surrounded by a bunch of idol-worshiping wicked people that are self-righteous because they're educated. I know you're surrounded by these people that are all about their culture, and I know where you are. I know where you're serving. I know who you're ministering to. He knew the city uh, the believers of Pergamos lived in, and he knew what they were up against. And so how does he describe the temperature of the city. He says it's where Satan's throne is. When I first pastored the church in Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz means Holy Cross, but when we moved there, we were meeting at a vet's hall in downtown Santa Cruz, and literally two doors down was the, the nationwide headquarters for the Church of Satan. Two doors down. And I would go by and knock on the door to see if we could, have, we could talk a little bit. And we had, one, we had one group of people say they put a curse on our church and that, you know, they're, you know that we, how dare we put our church so close to them and they put a curse on us. And I said, well, greater is he that is in me than is he that is in the world. And God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. And we serve all, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And Satan is a defeated foe who's headed to hell and wants to take you with him. Bro, you need to get saved. Can I get an amen to that? So we don't have to be afraid. But he says, this is where Satan's throne is. It's in your backyard. Satan lives where you are, and he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. city, again, was filled with idolatry, sexual immorality, Caesar worship, intellectual arrogance. Sounds like California. Jesus describes Pergamos as a city that has become a stronghold for Satan. By the way, do you know Satan's not omnipresent? Did you know that? He can't be everywhere at once. He can be one place at a time. He's not the opposite of Christ. He, again, if he's opposite of anything, he'd be like Michael the archangel. So he was an angel, a beautiful angel in heaven, tried to overthrow God and was cast out. A third of the demons went with him. So he can have demonic presence, but sometimes I think we give Satan too much credit. Amen? Our God's greater. We don't need, we don't need to address him. You see in the Bible, let's let God take care of him. Amen? Let's focus on the Lord, not the enemy. 
But the time of this writing, Pergamus was Satan's headquarters, had a stronghold upon the city, and it wasn't an easy place to be a Christian. And again, I know there are easier places, but I don't think it's by chance that the serpent uh, God is worshipped there, and that the serpent of old made his name, his headquarters there. So they got a serpent God they worship, and it's Satan's headquarters. That makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? Guys, if you're worshiping the enemy, he will feel welcome there, amen? And if we open up our lives to that, the things that are demonic, the things of this world, don't be surprised when we welcome the enemy. The Lord knew and was sympathetic to the environment they lived in, and again, things upon which they had in common uh, with Pergamos. Again, idolatry, sexual immorality, the institution of higher learning that is adversarial toward the gospel. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Higher learning that attacks the gospel. Christians are idiots. That's what they'll teach. It's an old antiquated book written by a bunch of men filled with contradictions. I love, I love meeting those people. I really do. I love to have lunch with people like that. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We don't have to be afraid. Notice what he says the rest of that verse. So it's where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. And do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was the faith was a faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he's encouraging them, despite the fact that they lived in such a wicked city, in the face of great persecution, the Christians in Pergamus held fast to their faith in Jesus. He said, I don't care what happens, we're going to stand with Jesus. Just like the ones in Smyrna were, were persecuted, and they were going to make a stand for him. In the midst of all the trials, again, we can, we can make the mistake of walking away from God, we can question and blame the Lord. Some even curse his name, or we can cling to him. Amen? We can either hold on to Jesus, or we can walk away. Now, if you heard me share this in Psalm 23, it says, you know, the, when we're lying down in green pastures, that's how the, the psalm starts. When you're lying down in green pastures, you can forget where the shepherd is. You're lying down in the green pastures having a picnic in the sun. Where's the shepherd? I don't know, he's around here somewhere, Right? But when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you hang on to him with both hands. Amen? And see, trials are used to draw us closer to the Lord where we cease to find our, our you know, sustenance in ourselves. And notice it says, faith to what? Faith in what? Notice what it says here at the end of verse 13. Faith even in the days to my faith. Do not deny my faith, but hold fast to my name. See, it's his name. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Amen? That's why I don't really like to talk about God, because God could be the monkey to some people, or the elephant, or the God of the Mormon church that was a man on a planet that became God of his own planet, and they think they're going to be God on their own planet. You know what I like to talk about? I like to say Jesus. Amen? People want to take in God we trust off our coins? Fine. Put in Jesus we trust instead. I'm good with that. Amen? But the reality is there's no other name, and it's his name alone. And they have faith in his name, as there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And our faith is in him, and we should not be ashamed of it. I'm also tired of this. This is a, a small pet peeve, I guess you would call it for your pastor. I may, they, they call, people want to take the away Christian. Now, I'm a faith follower. What does that mean? Christian means little Christ, follower of Jesus. I love being a Christian. How about you? And I love having that. You can staple that all over me. I'm good with it. Well, I'm a faith follower. I'm on my journey. There's no journey. He fit is finished. He paid it. It's done. Can I get amen to that? We don't need to be on a journey. I found Jesus. He was never missing. Can I get amen to that? So they did not deny the faith, his faith. He says, my faith, even though the consequences for doing so could cost them their lives, the persecution, possibly even their martyrdom, they didn't deny the fact that they knew him. They stood firm in proclaiming him and him alone to be the one and only Lord Savior of all of mankind. Now, how many of you, and I'm going to write my hands first one up, how many of you have been in a situation where you can make a stand for the Lord and you remain quiet? And we do that out of fear of man. Amen? And I'm sure every hand went up. And you know what? Here's the prayer in the morning. 
before your feet hit the ground, mine's yes, Lord, your servant hears. You know, help me, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, uh, today I want to be used for your kingdom and for your glory. I pray for divine appointments, and I pray when they come that the Holy Spirit will give me the strength to speak up when I need to speak. And Lord, give me the words that I need to say. I want to be a tool in your hand today, Lord, for your kingdom and for your glory. And Lord, I can't do this without you. Fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And you know what? We need to get up ready to realize we're walking into our mission field as soon as you walk down that hill, and every person we run into during the day is a divine appointment and an opportunity for the gospel to either encourage another believer or to speak truth into life of somebody who doesn't know him. Amen? Now, they knew that if they spoke, they could die. Because read the rest of the text here. Notice again, he says, my faith, the faith of Jesus. He did not deny all that Jesus taught about himself. You don't deny anything about me. He's the Messiah. I, I, I don't understand this. I, somebody who I thought was a Christian just came out and said, well, Jesus is my way to heaven, but I believe there's many ways to heaven. You know what I call that? An unbeliever. Right? Because Jesus is the only way. There's no other way. And so he's the Messiah. He's the almighty God incarnate. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he's the only one that can redeem and save sinful man. And they did this even in the face of persecution. Look what it says the rest of the verse. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you. So Antipas, Antipas refused to compromise. Only time this guy's mentioned in all of Scripture. He refused to compromise. He would not back down from what he believed. He would not deny his faith at any cost. And he was a faithful martyr. The word martyr there, martos, is the same word attributed in, in uh, Revelation 1.5 that's translated witness. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So the word for martyr is also the word for witness. And here's the reality. You can't be a martyr if you're not a witness. Amen? Oh, I was martyred for my faith. I never said anything about God, and then I died. I was martyred for my faith. No, you weren't. You died. Can I get amen to that? A martyr is somebody who makes a stand for the Lord and is willing to lay down their life for the Lord. And so they literally refer to people who witnessed this, they called them martyrs. And while we know a little bit little about Antipas, the fact that it's the same word was used to describe him as was used to describe our Savior speaks volumes. He was a faithful witness even unto death. He was a faithful witness of the truth to the lost and a faithful example for all believers to follow. A lot of times, we won't even talk to our neighbor. Well, he might say something bad. They might, they might not like me. People are willing to die for the cause of Christ, and we're worried about our next-door neighbor that we meet at the mailbox that he might not like us as much. I have a couple of neighbors that call me a Jesus freak. I love it. <laughs> Comes a Jesus freak. Who better to be a freak for? Can I get an amen to that? You're a Raider fan. I'm a Jesus freak. Give me that. Can I have an amen? Look, one who is truly a martyr, not truly a martyr unless they are truly a witness, and no one is fully committed to being a witness until they are willing to become a martyr. Let me say that again. One is not fully committed to being a witness unless they are willing to become a martyr. Those Gospel for Asia brothers in India would humble me. I went out to these little churches, and when I would go to these little churches, they'd have these people, and they would be waiting there all day when I was teaching class because they're so hungry for the Word. And these guys would take me out to the outside of their town, and there's two holes in the ground. And I go, what is that? And they said, whenever we go into a village, we dig our own grave, and we let them all know, we're going to stay here and preach the gospel. If you decide to kill us, our graves are right there because we're not leaving. And I'm like, am I saved? <laughs> right? I'm like, they want me to take these guys? And I could teach them how to study the Word, but they taught me how to live a life totally sold out for Jesus. Amen? You know, every pastor I met there, again, had been beaten, everyone. Many had been imprisoned, and they had the joy of the Lord. I thought, man, I want to bring you guys to my church. And again, amen. So death doesn't make us a martyr. It reveals that we've been a martyr all along. So Antipas lived where Satan's throne was, where Satan dwells. Ad did this entire church, yet he stood against the attacks of the evil all around him. He would not compromise the truth. He would not go back to the idolatry, sexual immorality that was rampant in the city. He had held on to Jesus and was a witness to the truth. And again, his name Antipas means against all. And he fulfilled the meaning of his name as he refused to compromise despite the pressure that surrounded him. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Amen. That's an old hymn. 
for those of you who are old in this room. So none go with me, still I will follow. So number two there, point of overcoming compromise by holding fast to Jesus. Point number three, by refusing to allow compromise and false teaching into the church. Look at verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. Here they go. All right, you stood firm. You, you live in Satan's backyard. You're standing for the things of God. You know what? You're, you're, you're willing to be martyred for your faith. Those are all great. It's that Col- Anybody know who Columbo is? He's leaving. He says a bunch of stuff. And he turns around. Oh, wait a minute. One more thing. And whenever he said, oh, one more thing, you knew it was coming. Amen? Well, the Lord's like, okay, God, I'm blessed by your, you know, you're standing in your faith. Wait a minute, one more thing. Look what he says. I know your works. I know what you've done, but I have a few things against you. When the Lord has something against you, you don't want that. Amen? And you know what? To me, if the Lord said that to me and, and he has convicted me in those ways, I want to hear what it is so I can get right. Amen? What? Lord, Lord, what am I, What? What is it? That conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. So he's saying this to the pastor in Pergamos. Here's what he says. Because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. You're teaching people in your fellow. There's people that teach the way of Balaam. Now, what is the way of Balaam? What is that? Balaam was a prophet uh, that the Moabite king Balak hired to put a curse on Israel. At the time, about three million Israelites were going through the land, and God was giving them victory over every enemy they faced. So the Moabites were concerned that they're coming our way next. So King Balak goes to Balaam, who is a prophet, and he starts to bribe him to get up and speak curses, you know, stand up on the hillside, here come the three million Israelites, and to curse them from on the hillside. And Balaam initially says, no, I'm not going to do that. Then he starts negotiating. Well, I wouldn't do it for $10 million. He's setting a price, right? And finally, he gets a number that he agrees with. So he goes out and he tries to curse Israel. And when he opens his mouth, he speaks blessing because God won't allow him to curse Israel. And this happened several times. And this is, if you know anything about Balaam, you, about Balaam, you know that uh, it's a preview of Shrek, right? I mean, the talking donkey, right? You guys remember that? Talking donkey, right out of the Bible. Can I get him into that? So here's what happens. They're going along, and, and they've got this thing. It's got walls on each side. They can barely fit through. And the donkey's just like, not, just stops. And this is a donkey he's had. It's faithful donkey. So he starts whipping the donkey, and finally, the donkey, Pastor Dave paraphrased, turns around and says, Dude, do you see the angel with the sword right there, bro? You paying attention? And he starts arguing with the donkey. <laughs> and then the Lord lets him see the angel. He's like, Oh, the donkey saved my life. Praise God for the donkey. Now, what Balaam ends up doing, though, is he won't curse. He tries to curse him, and he can't. So here's what he does he goes to Balaam and says, Here's what you can do. Take your virgin, beautiful virgin women, send them down into the camp, and have them entice men to sleep with them, and then let those women introduce them to their false gods. That's how you'll get them. Do you know what? That's how they got them. They sent the women into the camp. What was so the way of Balaam? What was that? The way of Balaam was allowing themselves to be enticed again. Moab was exceeding, they were afraid, and, and, and Balaam couldn't do it. So he tells them, this is what you need to do. Go down and bring temptation. Draw them away. And again, Balak, again, was not happy initially because each time he asked him, he kept, again, being faithful to the Lord and speaking blessing. But Balaam, in his greed, unable to curse, devises this plan. So what is he doing? He's selling out his faith for money. The way of Balaam is enticing ungodliness for your own profit. You can defeat them within. Their God is holy and a jealous God, and the key is to stir up his anger against his own people. Do this, God will get mad at them, and then God will judge them for you. Get them to compromise, to rebel against the Lord, to worship other gods. Send your young women to seduce them and to lead them into idolatry. They follow the plan Israel bit. 
They committed sexual sin, they compromised, they rebelled against God, and they entered into idol worship. God brought righteous judgment upon Israel. 24,000 young men died of a plague. God brought righteous judgment. So when we rebel against God, we choose to satisfy our own fleshly desires and direct disobedience to the Word of God. That's what rebellion is. Rebellion is, you know what God's Word says, you know what God's Word commands, and again, we're not saved by good works, but because we're saved, we produce good works, amen? We're not trying to earn salvation, but as a born-again believer, you know when this is outside of God's will. We know this is rebellion against God's Word, and then we choose to do it anyway. That's rebellion, amen? When the Word of God says you're not to do it, and you do it anyway. By the way, let me to the younger people especially, Sexual immorality is rampant in the church, and God tells us you're not to have intimacy with anybody that you're not married to, and it needs to be one man with one woman. Can I get an amen to that? And we live in a time now that it's, it's rare that even amongst young Christians that they remain faithful to that. Now look, if you failed in the past, start honoring God in the future. Can I get an amen? Honor Him going forward. So idolatry, sexual immorality are big deals to God, and they don't go unpunished. So the doctrine of Balaam is to convince God's people to compromise concerning the word of God, which sets them up for righteous judgment. So the doctrine of Balaam, again, is convince people to compromise God's word. Do we not have pastors right now preaching things that compromise God's word? What's the answer? See it all day long. We're just going to openly love everybody. We do love everybody, but we don't affirm anybody's sin. Amen? We just want everybody to feel comfortable. I hope you're really uncomfortable on Sunday because that means you're getting convicted. Can I get an amen to that? So conviction is good. And the way of Balaam, again, sets up people for righteous judgment. It's what false teachers were doing, trying to give the appearance of serving God while at the same time compromising the word of God, all the while leading them into idolatry and sexual immorality and teaching people it's okay to do things that the Word of God forbids. It says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. This is a New Living Translation. I don't use it often, but I like this translation on this verse. It says, don't you know that those who do wrong will have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, who are idol worshipers, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, abusers, swindlers, none of these have a share in the kingdom of God. Now, how many of you guys are, are, are guilty of something on that list? Praise God for forgiveness, amen? Praise God for repentance, praise God for restoration. But as believers, we should not continue in those things. Now, if we do sin and we repent, He's faithful and just to forgive us, but this should not describe your life, amen? So today, sexual immorality, again, is marked. The whole culture of the ancient Roman Empire was simply taken for granted. It was assumed that everyone was being sexually promiscuous. And the Roman statesman Cyril said this, if there is anyone who thinks that a young man should not be allowed to love many women, he's extremely severe. Well, the Word of God is extremely severe because it's one man for one woman. God said, so he's right, you're wrong, get over it, get right. Can I get an amen to that? The person who lived by biblical standards of purity was considered strange. People will be dating a month, and they're surprised if you're not already sleeping together. Coworkers say things like, well, you got to, you know, this is kind of crude, sorry. Well, you know, you got to take a test drive before you buy the car. Anybody ever heard that before, guys? Come on. All right? Here's the reality. That's nonsense. That woman that you're going to marry isn't a car you're driving. It's the person that God created for you, and you treat her with honor and respect. Amen? And, and young ladies, you find a guy who doesn't, we got some guys who love to talk to him in Jesus' name. Amen? <laughs> They were to keep from the sexual immorality in the culture. And again, you really had to swim against the current to do that. It's not easy, but it's worth it. Amen? The doctrine of Balaam is compromise. Satan's way of attempting to destroy the church, to get them to compromise concerning God's word, to a call to holy living. The Bible is just a book of suggestions in their mind. It doesn't need to be taken seriously. It's the anthem of every liberal church in America today. The Bible is the word of God. They'll say, oh, it's a bunch of stories and analogies that teach us how to live a life. No, it's the Word of God that tells us we're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Amen? So the Bible is God's Word, not as suggestions, but as commands. And to compromise God's Word and belief or behavior is the doctrine of Balaam. Our behavior is a reflection of what we really believe. Well, I believe the Word of God. If you really believe it, we'll live different. 
There's a well-known atheist, uh, I think he's a magician, and he said, and I love this, he goes, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, but if you people who are Christians believe in God, you should be telling me about God every single day, because I don't respect your faith unless you do what your book says, even though I don't believe in it. And I'm like, man, that guy understands the Bible more than some Christians do. Amen? Because what he's saying is, if we really believe it, we would be concerned about people spending eternity in hell. Amen? And that's the exhortation. So they're going the way of Balaam. But not only the way of Balaam, but then he says there, not just the doctrine of Balaam, you know, um, sacrificing to idols. Look at verse 15. Thus you also have hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Now who's talking right here? Jesus is talking. If Jesus hates it, we should have nothing to do with it. Amen? So what is the way of the Nicolaitans? So the doctrine of Balaam is compromise to get people to compromise the word of God. And again, as Christians, we are set apart unto the Lord. The Nicolaitans means to conquer the people. That's what it means. While we have no definitive text, we believe to refer to the religious mediators who place themselves between men and God, establishing a religious system where men are given authority and affection that belongs only to God. So here's what the Nicolaitans did. And by the way, Nicolaitans is where we get the term laity. comes from that. And what they do is they would put layers between God and man. So you can't talk to God. you got to talk to this man who talks to that man, and then that man talks to God, and then that man hears from God, and then that man tells that man what he heard, and then that man comes and tells you. So if you've if you sin, you go in a box and you talk to a man, and then that man talks to God, and then that man tells you how many prayers you got to pray to be forgiven before you can be back with that God. And it's putting layers between man and God. Let me tell you something right now. First of all, as pastors, we're just servants. We're not between you and God. We're just here to minister to you, but we're sinners saved by grace like the rest of you, and there's only one head of this church, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so you don't have to go to men. Now, you can come to men for prayer. You can come to men for accountability and fellowship and other ladies. If your ladies here, we can do that. But guys, we don't need anybody to bring us before the Lord because when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn and we can enter into his presence anywhere and anytime. Amen? So anybody who puts a layer between man and God, it's the way of the Nicolaitans. What are they doing? You go to some places and they have, they have like a fence in the front. And then they got the guy and he's up on some thing up here, and then they got a bunch of people in front of him, and you're, you're out there, and we're here close to God, and you're out there. I think I've told you, I went to a Presbyterian church that asked me to come teach on a Sunday years ago in Santa Cruz, and when I got there, they, had, they wanted to give me this robe. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing that. There's this big old robe, multicolored robe. What am I, what, what is this? And then their pulpit, I'm not exaggerating, there were stairs up to the pulpit, and it was like 25 feet in the air, way up there. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going up there either. And I got one of the music stands and put it on the ground in front of the people, and I thought they were all going to die. <laughs> what are you doing? You're supposed to be up there. No, we don't go up there. Guys, we don't have, we don't have to be far away like that. Amen? We want to have intimate fellowship with the Lord. Believe to refer again to these mediators establishing a religious system where men are given authority. And here's what happens. When they're given authority, then often they're given the adoration that belongs to God. You don't kiss anybody's ring. Amen? You don't bow to any man. We don't revere men, we revere God. Amen? But what happens is putting layers in between man and God. I was in a little league field years ago, and the guy behind me said, oh, did you hear that the Holy Father died today? He was talking about the Pope. I turned around and said, bro, the Holy Father doesn't die because that's, he- that's the Heavenly Father, that's Almighty God. Amen? Call no man holy, call no man father. He's the Holy Father. No, the Holy Father doesn't die. Can I get an amen to that? But there's this mentality, and, and we can get caught up in it. We may be taught those things, but he's saying, look, what does he say about this? I hate it. Jesus says, when you put layers between me and the people I died for, I hate it. It's in the verse. Can we see that? Amen? The Lord hates it. Positions themselves as bad enough. How can you trust the teaching from such a person? God is not looking to put layers between himself and those who follow him. He reminded those layers and removed those layers at the cross. We bow to no one but him. God hates the fact that men have created such religious hierarchy. You're all called. You're all servants. You're all born again if you've given your life to the Lord. We all have the same Holy Spirit. I may have a different gift than you, but that doesn't make me more important than you. Does that make sense? 
We don't elevate men, we elevate God. And we worship Him alone. See someone bowing to a man or kissing a ring, you know that God hates it. And we need to, be, we need to steer clear of that. So point number four, number three there, by refusing to allow compromise and false teaching into the church. He's, he's saying that the way of the Nicolaitans, the way of Balaam, compromising God's word or putting layers between God and man. Uh, there was one church in Santa Cruz where they, they, there's a thing called shepherding. Anybody heard of that? Okay. And hyper-shepherding, shepherding was where everybody had a leader assigned to them. Whenever they made a decision, they had to go to that leader first and get their permission. And we had someone come to our church and she's like, well, you're my leader. And I, I, you know, uh, I've learned that now that you're my, because I was her pastor, now that you're my leader, uh, we're thinking about buying a car and we need to get your permission. What am I, mechanic? I don't, I don't know. I said, do you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? She says, well, yeah. I said, can you talk directly to God? She said, yeah. I said, why are you talking to me? Now, again, if, if you're... You know, she was a single. I said, look, if you're worried about the, we got mechanics in the church that can check it out for you, but we don't tell you what to do. Amen? And it was always, I have to go talk to my leader. Well, I talk to my leader (laughs) all the time. Can I get an amen to that? We don't want to put layers between man and God. Now, number 16 here, by repenting when we've blown it. Notice what it says here in verse 16. He hates the way of the neglect. Repent or else I will come to you quickly will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's an exhortation, amen? Repent, that's what he said. Someone put it online, said, what was the message of Jesus? And all these people had all this stuff, and I, I said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen? But he's saying here, repent. He's, well, what is the word repent? You all know it. Repent means I'm headed in this direction. It's to change my mind. It's a change of heart. It's to turn around. It literally means to turn around. So I'm headed this way, away from God, living my own life. And repent means to turn back to Him. And the good news is you can take a million steps away. It's only one step back. Amen? And He desires to have intimate fellowship with you, and He's calling them unto repentance. Five of the seven churches in this letter, Jesus tells them to repent to recognize that they were doing wrong and taking action, need to take action to correct it. Repentance is, again, a change of heart that results in a change of action, and it's not enough to simply recognize we're wrong. We need to do something about it. Amen? So Jesus commanded them. You have two groups within the church that must be dealt with, those who teach the way of Balaam, leading people into compromise and idolatry and and compromising the word of God, and those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans place themselves between man and God, I command only not recognize they exist within the church, but take action to remove it. I'll never be elected, but if I was the head of the Catholic Church tomorrow, I'd fire every priest. They're all fired. All the bishops fired. Fired. Can I get an amen to that? We don't need all this stuff between man and God. They're not closer to God than you are. Amen. Most of them need to get saved. Everybody here that grew up Catholic is mad at me and leaving before the agape face, but it's not politically correct. Might split the church. We don't answer to men, we answer to God, amen? Jesus commanded the church of Pergamos to repent, to take action, to correct the problem. You're compromising the word of God, stop it, amen? Repent. Teach it. Stand with it. I don't care what the culture says. The culture's a lie. The Word of God is true. The culture shouldn't impact us. We should impact the culture. Amen? By standing for the truth. I will come against you quickly and fight against you. I don't, do you want Jesus fighting against you? No. Dude, I'm with you. Amen? Jesus is my homie. I'm with Jesus. Amen? I'm hanging out with him. I'm following him. Get him, Jesus. I'll just stand back here. Amen? I don't want him fighting against me. And he's telling him, if you don't repent, we're coming against you. If the church doesn't deal with it, Jesus will. If the church doesn't deal with this false teaching in the church, Jesus will. If the church doesn't deal with the compromise of God's word, Jesus will. And you know what? We need to correct it rather than having to have Jesus come and correct it for us. Amen? Word for sword here again is not a dagger, but a large sword used in battle 
And again, it's the same word used used in Revelation 19. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. While being dealt with by the local church is no fun, it's far worse to be confronted by the Almighty God. Amen? Most churches won't confront sin because they're afraid of hurting somebody's feelings. And they're afraid they won't. It's not very loving. You know, it's not very loving to let you go to hell without Jesus. That's not very loving. Amen? Friends don't let friends drink and drive. I say Christians don't let other people die and go to hell without Jesus. Amen? The face and the wrath of righteous judgment of Almighty God that will come upon those who refuse to repent. Guys, we need to let people know there's an answer and there's hope. Jesus will judge with the sword. He will confront those who refuse to repent. Final point. Overcoming compromise by recognizing the blessings of obedience are far better than the temporary pleasures of compromise. Verse 17 says, He was in ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. He was in ear, let him hear what he says to the churches. Though they are surrounded by paganism, surrounded by idolatry, sexual immorality, and academic pride, and all the intimidation and persecution that goes with it, they were to stick to God's word as the standard for holiness. He was in here, whoever needs to listen this morning. He was in here, let him hear. If you're here this morning, maybe there's an exhortation for you. You've got caught up in something and it's time to repent as the dangers of false teaching and immorality and compromise still exist today. Sadly, again, most must not be ignored but dealt with in the local church. To him who overcomes, the word overcomes here is one who is uncompromising concerning the word of God. It is the standard for both their doctrine and their practice. They're not swayed by the false teaching of the Nicolaitans or false living and compromise of the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam was false living and Nicolaitans was false teaching. And he said they're not being impacted by either one. Now let me clear this up as we get ready to go to communion. This is perfect. I will give some of you the hidden manna. What's manna? Where do we see that? Exodus, when they're wandering in the wilderness, God's food falling from heaven, which they complained about, by the way. <laughs> Jesus himself is called the bread of life. Hidden manna, you know, in the, in the Ark of the Covenant, right, there's three things that all point to Jesus. You have the mercy seat with the angels on the top, cherubim, and inside you have a jar of manna, you have the Ten Commandments, and you had Aaron's rod. Jesus is the great high priest, right? He is the bread of life, and he is the fulfillment of the law. And so they all point to Jesus, and he says, I'll give to you hidden manna. So God's provision for wandering in the wilderness was manna. And Jesus fulfills them all, again, as we've said, and I will give you, and so I believe this speaks of deeper knowledge of the Lord that comes from obedience to his word. So as we obey God's word, our relationship with God grows closer. Amen? Now, again, obedience doesn't save us, but obedience is fruit of being saved. And as we obey the Lord and his word, we get closer to him. We know him better. We have a deeper relationship with him. Wouldn't you admit that's true? When you see people that walk in faithful obedience to the Lord, aren't they closer to the Lord than someone who's walking in rebellion? So if you want to be closer to God, obey him. Spend time with him. Seek him. Amen? By the way, you're as close to God as you want to be. God doesn't want you far. God wants you close. If you're far, that's you, not him. That's on you. That's on me. Amen? We want to be close to him. We need to obey him and spend time in his word. Let me finish with this. It's so good. What's this white stone all about? It gives you a white rock. What's that about? I'll tell you what. It has many possible interpretations, but I believe it fits the one of the stone of acquittal. Here's what would happen in those days. Jurors were handed a white stone and a black stone. And when they would do court, then they would judge whether or not they thought the person was innocent or guilty. If you're innocent, you got the white stone. If you're guilty, you got the black stone. You know what? Because of Jesus shed blood upon the cross of Calvary, we're all innocent. We've all been redeemed. We've all been forgiven. Amen? He gives us forgiveness. He gives us redemption. He paid the price for you. And guess what? 
He's the only one that judges you, and he finds you sinless. He finds you forgiven. Guys, that almost brings me to tears. We've been forgiven. He gives us hidden manna, knowing him better. If we will draw near to him in obedience, and then the white stone of his forgiveness, his grace, the fact that, that he finds us not guilty. We are guilty, but you know he's a perfect holy God. He can't have sin in heaven, but he sent his son to suffer and die and take all of our sin upon himself. And now he sees us through the shed blood of his son, and he sees us as holy. What a great and awesome God we serve. Amen? To those who overcome, who reject the false teaching, who refuse to compromise, they will escape the judgment that will come upon those who refuse to repent. And again, I just love that picture. So as we prepare for communion, overcoming compromise, how do we do that? By making God's word our standard. If we know the word of God, we won't fall for the lie and the compromise. Number two, by holding fast to Jesus. Are you married to Jesus? You're the bride of Christ. Do you have an intimate relationship with the Lord? Is he the first one you think about in the morning, the last one you think about at night? Every decision do you make, there's a Holy Spirit filter there where the Lord is in the center of it. Hold fast to him. He's not just Savior, he's Lord. By refusing to allow compromise and false teaching into the church. I have somebody every once in a while come up and say to me, you know, I think you missaid something because this, and sometimes they're right. Well, that word in the original language, you know what? Let me look at that. You know what? You're right. Thank you. And you know what? Hold me accountable. Hold anybody accountable. Get up and te- hold the people accountable in the, teaching the women's study, the men's study, teaching the children's ministry. Can I get an amen to that? Let's hold, let's hold people accountable. By repenting when you have blown it. How many of us are prideful and it's hard to say, ask for forgiveness when we blow it? And it can be hard with people because we don't know how they'll respond. Guess what? When you ask God to forgive you, he does every time. Amen? You come, he's faithful. And then finally, by recognizing that the blessings of obedience are far better than the temporary pleasures of compromise. Satan wants to kill you. Satan wants to destroy you. Satan hates you. He will tempt you with things that are temporary pleasure for our flesh that will bring destruction. And the Lord, what the Lord has for us is far better. Amen? Far better. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. As we go this time of communion now, Lord, I pray we would do this in remembrance of you. It's an act of worship and remembrance of the cross of Calvary. Lord, may we take time to look back and remember the cross, but also take time to look within our own lives. May there any wicked way in us, may we repent. Lord, our Savior said to the apostles the next time, they took communion with him. This last supper would be in heaven. And Lord, we look forward to the day we will have us with you in heaven. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.